Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Sainz, and I'm the director of the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane. Together with Professor Caitlin Byrne, director of Griffith Asia Institute, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this Perspectives Asia webinar. I want first to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we all meet tonight, right across the widest reaches of this virtual platform. In the spirit of reconciliation and in acknowledgement of National Reconciliation Week, I recognise the continuing contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to our shared creative community. For 16 years, the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University and the Gallery's Australian Centre for Asia-Pacific Art have staged this series of public seminars to explore issues of contemporary culture, politics and society in our region. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first ever Virtual Perspectives Asia. Thank you for joining us. The series has been privileged to co-host a diverse range of speakers on various topics that look at Australia's relationship with its Asian neighbours. We're already in the planning stages for our second Virtual Perspectives Asia event in June, and details will be sent out shortly. Tonight's discussion could hardly be more important or more timely, touching as it does on a long-standing issue for Australia that has been further exacerbated in recent months by the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. This evening, Professor David Walker, AM, will begin by outlining the key themes of his book, Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian Region. This will set the scene for what I think will be a very lively discussion around how our past continues to fuel anxiety and even racism today. Professor Walker is an historian and emeritus professor at Deakin University and a leading authority in the study of Australian perceptions of Asia. He has written extensively on Australian social and cultural history, including in An Anxious Nation, Australia and the Rise of Asia, 1850 to 1939. He is an honorary professorial fellow in the Asia Institute, University of Melbourne, and was the inaugural BHP Bilton Professor in Australian Studies at Peking University. Following Professor Walker, uh, Professor Jin Hum will share her thoughts on modern Australia's anxiety and subtitling department. She is a leading expert in subtitling intercultural communications and translating Chinese culture. Over more than 20 years, she's been individually credited for the English versions of over 200 major Chinese films and documentaries broadcast on SBS channels, as well as translating for the hit Chinese dating show, If You Are The One. We'll finish tonight with the Q&A with both speakers, moderated by Caitlin Byrne, director of the Griffith Asia Institute. You'll be able to join us by sharing your questions by the Q&A function, which you can find at the bottom of your screen. And you could submit questions at any time during the event. So thank you and thank you again for joining us. And please now, would you join me in welcoming Professor David Walker. Thank you very much, Chris, and thank you co-hosts. Uh, before turning to Stranded Nation, I'll say a little bit about uh, Anxious Nation, which, as you have just heard, covers um, Australian responses to the rise of Asia uh, from the mid-19th century down to the 1930s. Anxious Nation has two major themes running through it. One of them is the idea of invasive Asia, by which I mean a spectrum of responses to Asia at one end, 
there's uh, very clearly a military uh, invasive concern about loss of territory uh, and the collapse or the takeover of white Australia, which is, of course, very bad news. And there was a lot of uh, invasion-related writing in the 18, from the 1880s onwards. And I think it played into debates around federation as well. But I also, at a, the other end of the spectrum, there's a rather more diffuse and abstract set of concerns about and interest in uh, what this uh, rising Asia might mean. So sitting alongside a narrative about uh, threatening Asia are a set of uh, interests in rising Asia, fascination with rising Asia, uh, particularly with Japan and Japanese art and crafts and so on. So a belief that there are new worlds opening and there's, uh, while this is a, in a sense a minor key in the period, it's nonetheless a pretty important one, a pretty significant uh, note running through the period from the late 19th century into the 1930s of fascination, uh, curiosity and interest uh, in rising Asia. So let's leap down to the 1930s. In the 1930s, a number of leading figures in Australia, including uh, Robert Menzies, wanted Australia to play a more significant role uh, in the Asia-Pacific region, in some ways to rehabilitate the idea of Australia and its uh, proximity to Asia. And Menzies was among those who were proposing that Australia play a leadership role uh, in the Pacific alongside Britain. So the, there was the British Imperial Project in Southeast Asia. Australia would join Britain in uh, fulfilling those important tasks. Uh, it gave Australia a seat at the big table, which Australia wanted, and uh, created a worthwhile kind of role for Australia, as I say, a kind of leadership role uh, in the Southeast Asian region. Okay, leap forward again, please. Uh, leap forward to the late 1940s. Uh, this time, Asia is, uh, Asian decolonization is in full swing. Uh, the Dutch have been pushed out of Indonesia. The British have been pushed out of India and Burma. The Americans have left the Philippines and Asian decolonization is gathering immense uh, momentum uh, throughout the region. So Australia, this country that uh, imagined itself playing a leadership role in the 1930s, now finds itself as a rather odd uh, white outpost of the British Empire in an increasingly vocal and Asian world. So the strategy, in a sense, has to change. Australia, from the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s, begins to see the need to present itself to Asia as a hospitable nation, as a friendly nation. Australia is part of Asia. Um, there's a notion that we are, that we, we try to present the view to Asia that we are a people without racial prejudice. Uh, we only, you know, we, we, uh, we love and admire the region. We don't love and admire the region quite enough to want them to come in as immigrants. So, the balancing act is to sell an idea of hospitality, to sell an idea of friendliness, to sell an idea of being part of the region, while at the same time uh, maintaining uh, an exclusionary immigration policy, an impossibly difficult 
uh, juggling act through the 1950s and 1960s. Now, one of the other things that's taking place at this time in the early 1950s is that Australians are beginning to see, for the first time, increasing numbers of Asian visitors. They're coming into Australia as Colombo Plan students. They're coming into Australia as uh, Asian visitors in an Asian visitors program uh, sponsored by the federal government. And again, people are seeing uh, multi-lingual uh, people, capable people, articulate people, uh, and often charming people who had earlier been represented in those one and two dimensional uh, threat narratives uh, before the Second World War. So Australians are actually meeting the people that their policies uh, sought to exclude. And they were finding that they were, as I say, quite capable, articulate and talented people. And the argument then came about, well, why are we keeping them out of our country? And the third section of Stranded Nation examines the role, which I think historians have underestimated, the role that Asian visitors played in persuading Australians or showing Australians that the people that they had uh, previously mistreated rather badly or, or looked upon as inferior were actually very, very uh, capable and worthwhile people. And in a sense, it was the Asian voices and the Asian presence that increasingly undermined the rationale for white Australia. Why were these people being kept out? when many of them were so capable and so capable of making a contribution to Australian society. So the, the argument, I think, is that Asian, the Asian presence, even at that stage, was making a significant impact on Australian policy and Australian self-understanding. Now, coming, and finally, to the idea of stranded nation, in the 1930s, there was Australia seeing itself as 98% British, very attached to the British project. By the late 1960s and 70s, Britain has made it very clear that it's moving towards Europe. Britain joins the European community in 1973. And in some sections of Australian society, this is a source of tremendous, a tremendous loss and grief that the British connection is, is withering away and diminishing at the same time that Asia is advancing with the ever-increasing rapidity and speed. And while there's been some recognition of Australia's uh, advancing Asian uh, future, and I'll end on this note, I don't think that Australia was uh, politically or culturally or educationally prepared uh, for the Asian future, which was... Uh, advancing so rapidly from the 1970s onwards. So I'll leave my comments there and we can take up some of those issues later if we so desire. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. Really fantastic to have you here. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Caitlin Byrne. I'm the director of the Griffith Asia Institute. And it's fabulous to be here and to have you join us for our very first virtual uh, Perspectives Asia. It's incredible that after 16 years, you know, it's taken 16 years to get to this point. Um, and I have to say, I think I'm more nervous in a virtual environment than uh, in the um, beautiful theatre at Goma, which I'm missing right now. Um, but it's really been a delight for me to have David um, share some of his insights, and particularly on the book, which I know, David, 
has been a project that you've wanted to get to for a number of years, and it's really fantastic that you've been able to get to it. It's a brilliant um, tale, really, about the way that Australia has sought to engage its region over decades past, and so many themes that are relevant today. And we're going to come back to those. But for now, it's my job to introduce Professor Jing Han, who's the director of the Australia-China uh, Institute for Arts and Culture at the University of Western Sydney. And as Chris mentioned earlier, we've invited Jing to come and, and give her response to David's presentation on Stranded Nation, really through the lens of Australia's modern anxiety, I suppose, about its region and its place in it. So Jing, over to you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Caitlin, for the introduction and uh, thanks uh, to the Griffiths Asia Institute and Australian Centre of uh, Asia Pacific Art for the invitation. It's a great honour to speak on the uh, Perspective of Asia seminar and it's a certainly a great privilege to speak on the same Zoom with uh, Professor David Walker, a great historian. Uh, his new book, uh, Stranded Nation, is uh, uh, such a rich history book and is written in a very lucid and uh, enlightening way. And um, I have found many answers of, um, in the book of uh, my understanding of um, Australian past and present. So following on what Professor Walker has just said, this uh, notion of anxiety came from uh, being stranded in a region which have been so alien uh, culturally and racially but also uh, close, so close, you know, uh, geographically. The fear of Asia and Asian invasion have, has run throughout the Australian history. And much of that fear uh, was often fed by um, lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding and often imaginary uh, evilness. Uh, the historical anxiety and uh, prejudice uh, against uh, Asians and the Chinese in particular is uh, certainly living on. And uh, that has been much reflected in the current rise of racism uh, brought on by the coronavirus outbreak. The fear of this evasive and pervasive uh, COVID-19 fuels the, un uh, the old and ongoing anti-Asians, uh, anti-Chinese sentiment. But I do see the difference between the past and the present is that uh, now we can all call out on those racist behaviors. And um, many people are outraged by those behaviors, which are uh, damaging, uh, hurtful and harmful to the nation. Uh, in the meantime, uh, just as uh, Professor Walker presents in his book, those uh, counter narratives to the exclude, exclusionary white Australian story there exists a constant uh, interplay of a threat and opportunity as well as fascination and curiosity. Uh, cultural differences have become an attraction and uh, have helped lead to uh, more understanding. The, those cultural differences are a major, actually a major contributory uh, factor to the, what I call incidental success of this Chinese dating show, if you're the one. Uh, in Australia. Uh, the show uh, started on SBS in 2013 and has been showing since. It has set the record of the longest running non-English TV program in Australian broadcasting history. The success was a big surprise to SBS. When we first purchased the first 13 episodes just for a little taste, 
we have not uh, uh, expected that it would have struck a chord with the Australian viewers because of the show is very different from what has been shown on, on Australian TV. So many people are wondering who is watching. And uh, originally we targeted a, a young audience in their 20s to 40s, but it turned out that uh, anyone, regardless of uh, age range, gender, professions, or cultural backgrounds could be watching the show, as you can see here. And these are just very few random pictures. Uh, and the last one was in high school classroom. So as we have seen you know, in history, uh, differences could be alienating and generated fears, but can also draw people in as this show has done. And one of the opposite attractions of this show to, uh, to Australian viewers is what they call brutal honesty. And as you can see here, you know, Chinese can be very direct when expressing themselves. So um, interestingly, uh, the, this, uh, this brutal honesty is very much appreciated by uh, Aus Australian viewers. And um, uh, they quite appreciate this, uh, this honesty with no uh, filter. It's also interesting to note that um, uh, the popularity of this show uh, is also a big surprise to people in China and uh, including Chinese officials who would prefer uh, though um, an officially approved show uh, promoting China in the best light but not knowing that uh, the attraction of this show is the uh, uncensored presentation of ordinary Chinese people and their, their stories. So you can see that it is um, uh, the show basically brought uh, ordinary Chinese and their stories into uh, Australian viewers' lounge rooms. And it has also brought Chinese culture, Chinese views on love, relationship, marriage, family, uh, as well as Chinese humor and social changes to Australian audiences. So my argument is um, it is this uh, human touch and the connection on the level of humanity that have narrowed the gaps of racial and cultural differences and have contributed to more understanding, which is what we need in this country. Thank you, Caitlin. Thanks so much, Jing. Uh, really fantastic to get your insights and that modern uh, insight as well. Uh, and we are definitely going to come back to talk to you about If You Are The One. Um, for the next 20 minutes or so, we've got, uh, we're going to have a, a bit of a discussion with our panelists and I would invite those of you in the audience that have a question, just to look down at the bottom of your screen, you have a Q&A function and you can type uh, your question in there and we'll come to that and hopefully we'll have time to get through the questions, all of our audience questions before the end of our seminar. Um, but David, I'll come to you first. Now, when we started talking about you presenting at Perspectives Asia, we certainly weren't planning on a COVID-19 lockdown. But it's really interesting because it seems that in this, in this environment, the title of your book, Stranded Nation, has taken on a new meaning. And I think that's something for us really to reflect on. But in fact, you are looking at Australia's past. And the book begins with a sentence that one of Australia's greatest challenges has been to understand its place in the Asia-Pacific region. A challenge, it seems, we're yet to crack. So we've talked tonight... Um, about some of the lessons we might learn from history. 
What do you think are the most important lessons we need to pick up on from your book? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. And thank you, uh, Jean. Um, it seems to me that I, I, I would start by saying that I regard the historical understanding of this relationship as being vital cultural knowledge. You know, it's cultural literacy for us to know mm. the ways in which we've thought about Asia in the past. Um, and without that knowledge, um, we, we just don't understand uh, the language that we're currently using or the ways in which that language, where that language has come from. But I think the, and, and it's a lot older, it's a longer story than we commonly imagine. So often we think of um, Asia literacy as something, the term came up in 1988, was introduced in 1988 at the Bicentenary. We think of that uh, discovery of Asia as being a relatively recent late 20th century phenomenon. But in fact, Australia has been reflecting on and showing various kinds of concern and fascination with Asia from the late 19th century. Mm. So I, I really do uh, suggest that we need to know that, that history uh, rather better than we do. One of the more particular reasons for that is that it does teach us how we've some of the repeat motifs in our response to Asia. You know, what are the things we, we constantly say but don't necessarily reflect upon? But in the 1950s and 60s, uh, one of the things that was constantly said uh, about Australians was, and partly in order to sell Australia to the region, was that we were people without racial prejudice. You know, racial prejudice was really unknown to us. You know, we were a hospitable people, a friendly people. And that, uh, it seems to me that if you bash an idea like that into people's heads over, over a couple of decades or longer, then they may form a slightly uninformed understanding of their, their history and the attitudes that they've formed to people who are racially uh, different from themselves. So I think there are all sorts of ways. That's just one example, of course. In a book rich with examples, Kate. Indeed um, it is. It, <laughs> That's, and colourful uh, characters, that, David. Absolutely. So that's, that's sort of one example of where I think we just need to know our history better than we do. And, and that brings me to my next question about one of those colourful characters. And there are so many, and, and I think what's brilliant is the way that you draw out um, a number of characters, real and uh, imagined, um, that loom large in that engagement story. One of them is the story of Dr. Man Fu Manchu or the, the image of Dr. Fu Manchu and how that seems to define Asia um, in many ways for Australia for some, for some period. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more to that. I believe I can. Um, Fu Manchu was actually introduced uh, to literature, not an Australian invention, a British author, uh, brought... Fu Manchu into fiction in 1913 after there'd been a, a number of Asian masterminds doing devilish things. And he continued right down into the 1960s and 70s. There were still stories, Fu Manchu stories and films as late as the 1960s and 70s. Some of the features of Dr. Fu Manchu are particularly interesting, I think, and pertinent to this discussion. One of them is that he was a person of towering intellect. He had a very, very big brain, uh, which, as I've, I've, I've actually said this to Jing, a big brain is a wonderful thing unless it appears in Chinese people, and which, in which it becomes a very threatening thing. So Fu Manchu's got a giant brain, 
Uh, he's also Dr. Fu Manchu, so he's medically trained, but his medical skills are not turned to uh, healing purposes. Uh, he's effectively a bioterrorist, a mm -hmm. uh, bioterrorist who uses his knowledge to advance his, uh, his own cause, which is uh, world domination. So some of these themes, it seems to me, uh, have a, a rather uh, powerful and unnerving resonance uh, into the present. But there's this uh, sense of menace around him, a sense of implacable will uh, and a capacity, given that tremendous intellect of his and that mighty brain, a capacity not only to plan things, but to carry those plans through in a way that uh, ordinary mortals cannot possibly do. And I notice he reappears in the books and is referenced at different time frames, including when Australia, um, you know, time to take the portrait of Dr. Fu Manchu down when Australia establishes diplomatic relations with China, but also re-emerges in some of the commentary around the visit of Indonesia's first foreign minister to Australia in 1959. So it's interesting to see how he appears and reappears um, through that narrative. Yes. But I might now come to you, Jim, um, because one of the themes that David talks about, of course, is the visibility of Asians in Australia, particularly through the, the Colombo plan, and, and this idea that being exposed to people, that, that you know, there's nothing better than people-to-people -people connections for breaking down barriers and removing stereotypes and demystifying cultures in many ways. And you talk about this theme in Australia's experience of a QR1. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more to that. You've talked about the brutal honesty. How do you think this show might have shifted Australian attitudes towards understanding Chinese culture and people? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Professor Walks of the book, because the book's uh, very interesting. It's uh, the quoted so many examples and the real examples of our history. And if you read all those examples, you do feel like, you know, they, they have happened in real life. And it, to me, and uh, following on uh, David, David says, it's like so other narratives that are often being uh, not mentioned in history books is uh, connection and connection and engagement. So it is really engagement of this show that, that drives the success. And uh, the engagement also is quite surprising in many ways because as I said, I call this a show as an incidental success because by assumption, we may we thought that it would not be uh, interesting to Australian viewers because culturally, uh, Chinese culture is very different from, you know, Australian culture or Western culture. And so it's actually, um, you know, to everyone's surprise, I mean, like this one, this is a typical one. Uh, it, uh, the comment from Australian viewers are saying that why they found it so interesting. It's, it also resonates, they relate to that, you know, um, this um, love, relationship, dating, family, they are human or humanity, or, you know, issues, uh, things that we all care about, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what ratio, race you are. So, uh, so there is a relationship there, but you know, people can relate and can resonate uh, with, but also uh, the differences that they can see, you know, Chinese's view on relationship is very different from 
the Australian views. And uh, the, those uh, opposite attractions, apart from the brutal honesty, there are other things, for example, uh, for Chinese, they often ask, you know, questions like uh, when they meet or when they date, do you mind living with the in-laws, you know? Mm. Then, you know, Australian viewers, I don't, I, I, I don't even live with my parents, let alone in-laws, mm. and is that a question at all? And, uh, but that shows a part of the culture, you know, so in, in Chinese culture, the family, extended family are quite important. So, mm -hmm. uh, and also kind of a marriage is complicated is because it's not, doesn't involve two people as in Australia, you know, as yeah. long as we two like each other, that's, that's all settles, not in China. So they often say, you know, not only we like each other, our family, our parents need to like each other, our brother and sister need to like each other. So mm -hmm. it's a quite complex things, but then they are all hum human things. So I think it's this, uh, engagement and this uh, they can see the human stories which actually uh, Australian views have found very interesting again this uh, once you understand each other a bit more you mm. feel less alien and you mm. feel less likely to be prejudiced against which is important right now I, I guess and, it, and as we've seen over the last few months the Australia-China re relationship has really spiraled to a fairly low ebb and and in particular we've seen the rhetoric um, used in in a much more bellicose way um, not to mention the kind of economic threats that we've seen and and trade restrictions that have come into place so what are ordinary australians to make of what's been dubbed this new wolf warrior style of diplomacy um, and how can we respond to it is there are there things that we can learn from the past and david i might come to you first yeah, sure. Um, it is, it's a very complex uh, situation at the moment, and um, I'm uh, far from being able to offer an answer to that, uh, to that question, uh, Caitlin. But if I can just backtrack quickly to, to the Fu Manchu thing, and without wanting to show an unhealthy interest in him, we have to recognise, I think, that we, that, that figure was a, a projection out of our culture, out of, out of Western, the Western imagination onto the Chinese. So I think one of the things we need to examine when we're talking about wolf, wolf warriors or we're talking about uh, China as a bullying power or any of the other characterizations we might, we might use, we need to know often that we, we've been very heavily invested in the business of projecting images onto Asia generally and, on, and onto China. So I think one of the things we can do is be um, measured and circumspect in the use of language when we're describing the conduct of others. Now, in saying that, I mean, I think there's a lot to worry about in the ways in which uh, China under Xi Jinping is conducting itself. And what we see in Hong Kong is pretty disturbing, I think. But equally, what we see um, coming out of America and the willingness to blame China and the accusatory language around China's failures in the COVID uh, business, and there were failures, there were failures, but to, in a sense, uh, rein back our language. And I think actually uh, David Littleproud and Simon Birmingham were both through the trade dispute quite uh, circumspect in the use of language. They were not talking trade war. 
uh, they were trying to create an impression that uh, these things were uh, could be resolved, mm. and it was their intention and purpose to do so. And I think that was the right note to strike. Mm. And Jean, you know, does this come back to a kind of brutal honesty that we're just not used to um, ourselves? Is that is there a reflection here of that? Uh, I think it definitely has a lot to do with uh, language and misunderstanding of language. And language is just such a tricky. Uh, because I do, I do translation. I know how tricky and intriguing and uh, complexity translation can be. I mean, no language can be translated without being twisted in one way or the other, intentionally or not intentionally. And I think that's one aspect of the other thing. You know, like there are a lot of uh, uh, politics obviously involved. You know, the political relations and the bilateral relations involves a lot of political issues. I just want to be brought a bit on the human side, you know, like I'm not a politician, I don't really understand how they do things, but I, I try to look at it from the perspective of human perspective, for example. And uh, when I was in China, this is a very simple example is, when I was in China, the, we have a, we have a, the, the research department called Xuan uh, Bu Propaganda. Mm. So uh, I had never known that propaganda was a bad word. You know, uh, so and then for many years, actually in China, uh, they call those departments like a propaganda departments and minister for propaganda, and like recently, you know, changed. I know when I came to Australia, although that was a thirty years ago, so I realized, oh, there is meaning, you know, behind the propaganda, and uh, then because of democracy, there is the propaganda should not be allowed in many sense. But if you look at the recently, you know, like it is really hard to get a very independent opinion, you know, independent journalism. And you see the China, you know, wolf, wolf, warrior star, probably there is many truths to that. Mm -hmm. But also it's very hard to get, you know, you see propaganda from America and from uh, Australian media as well, you know, very skewed, um, angled, um, uh, reporting, which I found really discouraging in many ways because we really need some independent, more objective reporting that will help uh, people understand the situation. But on the other hand, I'm quite op optimistic is in the way you can see in history and there are up and downs in this uh, bilateral relationship on the political or diplomatical levels, but we, you know, cruised through and uh, I think in the end, it is a people-to-people -people understanding, the more cultural understanding. You know, won't be too concerned about those, um, you know, trading wars or verbal fights um, or insults between uh, countries. And it's interesting you mentioned media, you know, and, and increasingly free and independent media outlets are also under pressure. So we've got a number of competing pressures at, at the moment. I'm going to come now to some of our audience questions. I can see them starting to build up and, and it would be great to have an opportunity to get through them. And the first question comes from Mark Fenay, who um, asks, I think, David, if you could say something about the development of Australian academic and professional engagement in Asia um, or in Asian countries during the 50s and 60s, not least because this comes in the week when the National Library is reportedly contract contracting its long-standing collection of Asian materials. And, and I guess it's not just this week, but it's a long-standing decline in budget devoted towards maintaining its Asia collection as well. 
Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Caitlin, and hello, Mark. Uh, the, yes, I think the um, funding reduction to Asian collections in the National Library is a really disturbing uh, example of, of a kind of uh, cultural short-sightedness here that at the same time, that I, as I understand it, and I'm not sure of the figures, but I think $500,000 has been put to a refurbishment of the Australian War Memorial. So we need, again, to have a bit of a look at what we're saying here, that there's a set of symbols around the War Memorial, which are, are of course, important to the nation, important to uh, questions of identity and belonging and so on. But the Asian collections, and going back to, to Mark's question, um, those Asian collections were being built up uh, from the late 1940s, the national librarian of that uh, time, Harold White, was really quite keen on building significant Asian collections. And that was pretty well ahead of time in, in some regards. And Australian universities were also building up expertise uh, in Asian studies. And that was also, that expertise, that Asian studies expertise, has also come under tremendous uh, pressure, um, funding pressure and other kinds of pressures. So that in some ways, the expertise we had on Asia in the 70s and 80s was probably greater in, in many respects than it is now. And I think we also have to worry about how our universities are going to come out of the, the COVID uh, crisis because they're not being well supported. I mean. I have the tremendous hope that that the we can get as much attention paid to universities and the contribution they make to our well-being and our capacity to recover from an event like this as we pay to tattoo parlours. Now, I think it's pretty <laughs> unlikely that we'll get there. I have no confidence whatsoever that we'll reach that point. But but our our capacity to understand the region, the resources that we need to do that, and the National Library has been central in that way, mm. is critically important to us, really. And really almost a, a soft power asset in many ways. Yeah, and absolutely. one that we're potentially diminishing. And I'd add to your comment about universities, you know, the recognition of international students and the value they yes. bring to that uh, picture. Um, Jing, I wonder if I can turn to you and, and uh, the next question asks, how can arts or, and or popular culture play an effective role in creating more positive relations between Australians and Chinese that might be effective in countering the kind of the lack of trust that's currently prevailing between governments. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting talking about the cross-cultural relations or cross-cultural uh, communication and, uh, you know, on a few levels. Uh, obviously, academic level is very important, vital, you know, so, so much and so many researchers has been done and educated so many people. And if you see these days leading uh, expertise in uh, Australian-China relationship studies, they're all very well educated from universities, you know, we, all the leading authorities we know of. So, so vital. Uh, in the meantime, it's very interesting uh, also from Australian point of view and from China point of view, um, pushing through, you know, like in China, there is a call for pushing Chinese culture to the world. And often they, they come from the top down level, you know, they introduced the, the classic Chinese literature or 
uh, Chinese classics, which is just impossible even for you know many Chinese to read to start with. So and then you push to uh, Australian, so they don't really there is no interest. So a pop, popular culture or pop culture, there is an uh, advantage in a way. There is a quick engagement. You know, when you do not know something, is you need to be interested in the first. Once you are interested, then you want to know more. So engage the interest is actually very important first step. And if you look at the, how American literature influenced Australian literature, a lot through pop culture, you know, through films, Hollywood films and TV programs, you know, so, um, and fast food. You know, like those um, uh, pop fiction or pop fi uh, uh, culture is actually quite important. And if you're the one, it's, it's a typical example. And it's very entertaining. And the people, you know, hooked onto it because it's highly entertaining to start with. Mm. And then they, by watching, and then they realize, oh, you know, each one has an ordinary life story and uh, experiences to share. And then by doing that, they reflect contemporary China. So mm. uh, it's actually, and also this is a grassroots uh, engagement. It's, uh, it's uh, quite powerful. And mm -hmm. then people get interested. They want to know more about China. They want to talk about China. They want to go to China to travel. So this, um, and then becomes a mutual, um, mutual in engagement, I suppose. Yeah. And a quite interesting one is about pop culture. You know, like um, in, in China, many people know about Australia. They ask you about kangaroos, about opera house, and you want to say, oh, we have more than thing, more things than those two. And so when people come to uh, Australia, and many students experience this, Australians want to engage with them, and the question they ask is actually about if you're the one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's fascinating. I mean, it has 50 million viewers around the world, and it probably um, is one of the only shows I know in our family with with four young adult children that, with very different interests. It is probably one of the only shows that actually draws everyone to the couch um, at the same time. So it has this really magnetic appeal across, as you say, across generations and um, people, which is really fascinating to watch. Now, and, and one of the points you made about having, you know, a soft power projection that's initiated well away from government um, can have more success or more traction. But we do have a question about what the downside of that can be because it can be unpredictable and it's not always clear how people will respond to those messages. Um, and someone has asked about whether, um, you know, they're, they're commenting on the attitude uh, specifically of the girls that they're picky, they're sometimes seen as picky, materialistic and snobby and not necessarily the kind of people you can sympathise with. Have you seen any of the negative impact or picked up on some of the negative impacts coming through? Uh, this is really interesting. Um, uh, we have a lot of a, sort of a negative or concerned views more from Chinese viewers because mm -hmm. they are quite concerned. They feel like, oh, they are not representing the best uh, part of China. And so, but if you really watch it, you realize that they're not representing anyone. They are not representing China. They are representing themselves. Mm. And it's very interesting to realize because of the more you watch and then just all the girls or boys, so they're coming from all walks of life. And they, uh, it's good to see that some people are very materialistic. 
you know, they care about, oh, do you have a money so I can marry you? Well, that type of people in everywhere, you know, like in every society they have that people, but that's fine, you know, it's a people's choice. It's actually good to see that people have choice. They have individual choice. That didn't happen before, you know, in China. And also it didn't happen before in China that ordinary people can go on stage and tell their very ordinary stories. So I, I'm not concerned that about the, you know, isn't Madonna a mature, mature girl, but to stop her being an icon in many ways. I think the world needs a variety of people, so rather than uniform, I mean, no one has to be model or, you know. So the more people you see, the more you feel like, oh, they are real people. Yes. Ooh. And and a question that comes to both of you, actually moving beyond the idea of cultural familiarity as a way of reducing racism, um, because it doesn't necessarily explain the recent rise of race, race, sorry, racist incidents in relation to COVID-19. So what are your views on the importance of political and opinion leaders in discouraging, and some examples given here are Malcolm Fraser and Bob Hawke, or encouraging, and the examples here are Henry Parks, uh, Pauline Hanson, John Howard, um, racism, and the importance of this historically and currently in terms of the increase or decrease of racism over the last 160 years? It's a big question. David, would you like to tackle that one first? Oh, yes, I've got several days free, so I'll... Uh, <laughs> we'll I'll just stay start, online. I'll start on that one. I think... I, one of the things I'd say in relation to the Chinese is that they've often been linked to disease. Um, so if you go back to the 19th century, a lot of the smallpox, the smallpox outbreaks of the 19th century were directly attributed to the Chinese, uh, often wrongly. Um, leprosy, similarly, and plague in the late 19th and early 20th century. So the Chinese became a very ready source of blame for uh, the diseases that were uh, afflicting uh, Western societies at that, at that time. Mm -hmm. And that also goes to a, a kind of deeper characterization of China as unclean mm -hmm. and, um, and spreading, uh, spreading disease, a source of disease. And of course, anyone who's been watching the COVID story unfold will recognize uh, a lot of those tropes around disease. And some of them are, of course, a, a source of concern. Wet markets mm. are a source of concern. Um, mm. So the point at which a, a kind of reality hits a, a mythologized understanding of another people or a constructed or projected understanding of another people is really interesting point uh, for historians to deliberate upon. But but from my point of view, I think while we've also talked about Asia literacy, and I think that's important, mm. I think we need to know more about ourselves. You know, we need to know a bit more about what we project onto the region, the ways in which a lot of these understandings of Asia don't necessarily have a lot to do with Asia itself, mm. but they have a lot to do with what we project onto the region, what we mm. imagine the region uh, to be and what, what the dangers that region uh, allegedly poses uh, to us may be. And, and even the messages we need to project into it. I'm thinking of the cheap books 
scheme yes. under, yes. was that Casey? Yes, it was Casey. Mm. Um, and, and just, yes, you might want to explain a little bit about that. Yes, yes, I'm very fond of the Cheap Books program, uh, as, as was... Um, as was Richard Casey, a Minister for External Affairs in the 1950s. And he wanted a series of books that could be sent into the Asian region under the title of Cheap Books for Asia. And the purpose of those books was to tell the Australian story in a way that would uh, fascinate and engage our neighbours who were keen to hear that story, of course. And the, a little committee was uh, got together uh, to vet various books, and they tried ever so hard. None of them had read any of these books, by the way. Casey, had, no, Casey hadn't read any Australian literature much, and nor had his senior public servants. Uh, so they all had to rush off and read the uh, prescribed texts. At each reading, they would discover something in it that was a little bit uh, dodgy or doubtful or unacceptable. You know, there'd be racist comments, or there'd be uh, you know, wrong-headed statements of one kind or another. So they were constantly withdrawing books from the list. And the, upsh uh, the upshot was that after 10 years, no book was found that was considered suitable to project into the region or send into the region as an adequate statement of, what, uh, of Australian virtue, if you like. And uh, one of the other arguments I make there, and I'll make it uh, quickly, you'll be pleased to know, Caitlin, is that it seemed to me interesting, an interesting failure because Casey and his senior public servants were putting themselves into the mind of the Asian reader. So for the first time, they were actually reading Australian writing mm. as if through an Asian lens. And what they kept discovering in that writing were all sorts of offensive... Uh, and unpalatable statements, which as Australian readers, when they, and the reviews of a lot of these books were very favourable, no one noticed it. It just yes. wasn't noticeable. Put yourself into the, into the, uh, the eyes of the other, and suddenly all sorts of things are popping out at you, which you think, oh my God, you know, we can't send that into mm -hmm. the region. That would cause a riot. Really interesting, isn't it, having that empathetic worldview that can shift the way you might, you might actually look at those messages and projections. And Jing, I wondered if you had a comment on, you know, that, that, that role that very visible political or um, celebrities may play in just addressing the racism that we're seeing, particularly in this COVID-19 era. I, I, you know, I so enjoy reading uh, David's books and it's because uh, I can see both sides. So, you know, when I'm reading those books and I can see how Chinese were reflected there and, uh, you know, it's often in an imaginary way. And like in early, you know, 1880s, when they describe a Chinese, so what they look like, look like in the David quote George Johnson's uh, memory of a childhood, the sinister figures of a Chinese. I couldn't feel hope amused to say, oh, who are you talking about? If I feel like I'm reading Chinese ghost story, you know, we have this imagined evil figures as floating around. And so I think there is a lot coming from imagined because when you do not know, and when you do not know someone who is so close, but who is so different from you, you know, racially, culturally, and mm. all sorts, uh, historically, it's just so different, And but then it's so close. And then when you do not know, and you do have the fear. So uh, I think that has definitely a lot to do with 
racism in that sense. Uh, if you look at the uh, current uh, racism, you know, there are people who uh, the other day they reported an Indonesian uh, guy was coughed, you know, like a people uh, said you know, racist remarks uh, telling him to go back to China and he didn't even come from China. So the person who threw that abuse, insulting, it's like I couldn't even tell who is who, you know, so you can see the blindness of there. So I do see the... the Irrationality, and many people would say that. And so it's really about knowing more and getting mm. to know. So it is, it will be one of the keys to, to resolve, as well as you know, bigotry and the people just to, uh, mm. you know, coming up with that idea without changing, like a Trump, like a Pauline Hanson one nation. Mm. Mm. And when um, actually, just a, a question that, that is an extension of that is, um, and Jing, I might start with you as well, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role that particular understandings of communism have played in Australian anxiety, particularly in relation to China. I know this is something that, that sort of sits within, an ex within your lived experience. Mm. This is a quite interesting, I was just about to talk, uh, you know, in relation to that. So to Chinese, especially the uh, prejudice or um, uh, misunderstanding or lack of understanding is uh, culturally is one and uh, you know racially is one and the other one is ideology you know mm. so political system wise uh, I, I'm not here to defending any system but I just feel like a quite interesting uh, you know I grew up and uh, uh, born and grew up in China and I came to Australia in my mid-20s um, so uh, I came when I arrived in 1980s and I came as a well-educated person, you know, with uh, intelligent mm. minds and all sorts. And so clearly I didn't come from hell, you know, so many people, uh, and then I read especially uh, Stranded Nation and there is a quite big chunk about uh, 1950s uh, uh, about communism. And mm. it's quite interesting, there was a lot of a saying about uh, uh, Australians so feared that the communism, communist China will take over Australia. And I try to recall, you know, our history book. I don't think there was any mention of where Australia was. We had no idea <laughs> where is Australia, you know. So, so there is a kind of a two separate stories. Um, so I think, uh, and also there is a, a, you know, a very big historical case on the uh, dissolution of a communist party in, in yes. Australian legislation. That was also a very big surprise to me because you, know, you go to election um, you know, box and then you see so many different uh, political parties allowed and all sorts of that they try to dissolve. Communist Party, although that was overturned, but overturning was also a good testimony of democracy, uh, you know, in Australia. But it does show that uh, there is also ideology uh, difference and uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, hatred or anger still there. Um, but I don't know how much is based on actual knowledge. And, of course, you know, every system has their, um, you know, flaws and all sorts. While you, you um, I'm not totally agree with what, uh, you know, uh, Chinese government is doing, but not everyone agrees what Trump's doing either. So it's, um, yeah, it's not black or white, I just want to say. Oh.
David, did you have any comment to make on that question too? Uh, yes, I mean, I think it's it's a very interesting question, and I think it goes again to that idea of um, of communism as being a a system that is capable of delivering what it intends. You know, that that you get a. I mean, it was 1918. Lenin said that the way to Paris is through uh, Beijing, through Peking. So there's that idea of a of a linear progression, a plan. That plan will be delivered upon. Nothing will interrupt it. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will get in the way of it. So mm -hmm. I think there's this sense that we have in communist um, uh, societies, you have a capacity to plan and deliver on that plan. Mm -hmm. Whereas we in the democracies are muddled and short term, we don't know where we're going. We can't come up with policy on anything. We can't agree on anything. So I think there's that, that apprehension that, that a communist regime uh, will deliver um, and from a Western point of view, uh, for the most part, deliver bad things and deliver it with tremendous efficiency mm. and of an efficiency beyond our capacity. Mm. Well, look, we've actually come to our, our deadline for this evening's seminar. I wonder if I can squeeze in just one more quick question, uh, and it is to you, David. So you talked when you began about first writing Anxious Nation and then moving into Stranded Nation. Is this a trilogy waiting for the third instalment? Well, um, I... I'm, I'm thinking of doing so. I mean, that was the original plan. And then I then one or two small things intervened, like uh, legal blindness. So that, uh, I can assure you, slows a writer down. Uh, that is not an asset if you're writing a large book. But uh, with the wonderful assistance of my wife, Karen, um, I now believe that it might be possible to get onto volume three. So uh, we are contemplating that. But actually, in the meantime, I'm writing a book with my... Chinese translator, uh, Li Yao. So please invite me back to talk about that. Oh, that sounds fabulous. And, and look, I'm a huge fan of Anxious Nation. Stranded Nation is, I've got it here, a Very fabulous good. read. Um, and it's certainly a weighty read. And I know you and Akaran are a dynamic duo when it comes to these projects. So <laughs> we will look out for the third and we'll invite you both back. It's been a real pleasure to have you, David, and you, Jing, joining us this evening in a great discussion. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to welcoming you up north when the borders open and we can do this in person. Um, but I guess for now, it's time for me to close off and to say thank you to our audience. And I'm sorry, I know I didn't get through all the questions and that there are more we could go on talking for a number of hours. Um, we look forward to being able to work with our partners uh, at the Gallery of Modern Art next month when we come back with our next Perspectives Asia um, series and, and we hope that you'll be able to join us then. Thanks very much everyone and I believe it's time to finish.